0: Have your copies of scripture, if you will, turn to Hebrews. Chapter 8, verse 13. Uh, We'll give consideration to our text. Uh, I think it would be good for us to read it and for us to hear it uh, in its entirety. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, and we'll be giving attention to uh, this verse and Chapter 9. Would you follow along as I read? In speaking of a new covenant, he, meaning Christ, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters a holy place places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I have a question. How many sins did you commit this week? How many times did you disobey a dishonor God? How many sinful thoughts did you think this week? How many unkind words did you speak? How many times were you sinfully dishonest in your dealings with other people? How many times were you ungrateful, unloving, or unkind? How much time did you not steward well? How many sins did you commit this week? Here is another question: Given the absolute purity of God and His breathtaking holiness, and it is breathtaking, mind throughout the encounters that men had with God, as we see in the Old Testament, remember His presence wasn't fully displayed because a man couldn't see God and live. His holiness and His glory couldn't be approached in sin or by sin. So given the absolute purity and holiness of God and given our acknowledgement of sin, how is it that we are able to approach Him today? Now here's where we need to be careful. We may have come here today with no real sense of our sin. In other words, maybe we haven't even thought about the sins of this week. Maybe we haven't even given consideration to our sinful thoughts and acts throughout the course of the week. And we just made our way here, and we just walked in and sat down. I would say this is a dangerous approach to God. If we learn anything from Aaron's two sons, who were of the first generation of priests that we have been talking about, we had better consider the holiness of God when we approach Him. You may recall that they didn't. And their breath was literally taken. In fact, we hear now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before God, which he had not commanded them. And then you know what happened? They were stricken. They were consumed by the power of God immediately. So there is the danger of disregarding the holiness of God. And it is a grave danger. It was for them and it is for us. But we acknowledge today, I think, that we have all disregarded the holiness of God. In fact, when we sin, we are Deliberately disregarding the holiness of God. And when we don't deliberately sin, we are disregarding the holiness of God. And yet, we are still able to come and to worship Him. In fact, that's what we're here to do today. I hope it is. I know it's our intention to do that. And I hope everyone here can express the same intent. In fact, I hope you didn't just show up today. I hope you came with an intent to encounter God and to look at Him in His holiness and to worship Him. That is the purpose of our meeting today or at least a primary purpose of our meeting. You see, the God that snatched the life out of Nadab and Abihu is the same God today. So what's the difference? What's the difference between then and now? Well, don't think that God's holiness Has diminished. And don't think. That we are less sinful. He's not. Any less holy. And we are no less sinful. And also don't think. That God has gone the way. Of the culture. And decided that sin really isn't so bad. God hasn't become. More with it. In his old age. He hasn't mellowed. And he hasn't become a liberal. No, he is eternally holy and pure. And he is as committed to righteousness, his own righteousness, and our being made righteous, and he is as committed to judging sin and punishing sin as he ever was. So what's changed? Well, the author of Hebrews has been presenting his case all along the way about the change that has occurred as he has sought to encourage a group of persecuted Jewish Christians who it appears are beginning to at least wonder if everything really did change in Christ. Or was their approach to God through their former means of worship more sufficient. We left off last week with the fact that a new covenant has been established. That's the reason that we read verse 13. And it is clear that since the new covenant had been established, it necessarily means that the old covenant has been set aside. And as you can imagine, if all you had ever known was life under a certain agreement, a certain set of arrangements, and that agreement had been passed down generation after generation after generation through your family and through your community. And you understood that it was good and that it was given by God. And it had been sufficient to allow for the worship of God. And it held what you understood was all that you needed for this life and the next It would be hard to just walk away from it. But of course, we've already seen that throughout the people's history, while they had been given this arrangement and this agreement, there were signs all along the way, as we have already read this morning in our text, there were signs all along the way that this was not completely sufficient. It was good, it was given by God, but it wasn't sufficient. It did not meet the spiritual needs of the people. Which is what we saw last week in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7. That the old covenant was not without fault. In other words, it wasn't completely sufficient. The reason we began this morning giving consideration to worship is because worship is at the heart of this text. I want to show you that. Look in chapter 9. And we'll look at it in more detail in just a few minutes. But we start off in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. And if you'll look over just a few verses later, you will find that it is the worshipers that are being dealt with. So we understand and recognize that worship is central to this text. But it's more than just central to this text. The Holy Spirit knows and understands that it is central to who people are. Who we are as people. So we gathered here this morning, this number, and hopefully there are others gathered around this city and other cities and communities today who are genuine worshipers. In other words, it's critical to their life. It's critical to their ongoing in their living is critical to who they are. And not just as an act, but it is critical to them because they have recognized that they do need to assemble before God their maker and look at Him and His holiness and look at Him and the grace that He has extended through Jesus Christ. And that those things are absolutely necessary for life. I hope today that they are necessary for you. I would think so. Because as I'm looking around, unless something drastic has gone on in your life, we are assembled together here each week, week after week. I hope it's not just because it's something to do. And I hope it's more than just because you made a commitment to be here. But I hope that it's because you long for and understand an ongoing need for assembling before God and worshiping together with other people who are like-minded and who long to be encouraged by you in your presence so that you can encourage them as we gather before God to be encouraged in His Word. So what is all of this? Well, the first covenant had regulations for worship. We saw that. And several things come to mind with that. God's revelation in His law was about His character. So I've thought about it this week. Why begin there with worship? Well, we talked about the holiness of God, we talked about worship, and we're talking about a covenant. And what does all that have to do? Well, remember that he had established a covenant with Adam that was critical and necessary for Adam's recognition of and submission to God's authority and his goodness and his worth and his value as his creator and as his God. He established another covenant with Abraham calling him out so that there would be a people that would model for the rest of the world what it was to recognize the holiness of God, the worthiness of God, and to worship God. And then God comes and establishes this covenant with Moses. We are calling it an understanding as this first covenant as the author of Hebrews has said. To do what? To establish with and among His people the very essence of His character and His nature that came with their understanding of the law. You know, oftentimes we speak of the law and we speak of the Ten Commandments as a declaration of God of His goodness and His character and His nature. Why? Because it is pointing to the holiness of God. And in recognizing the holiness and the authority of God, God had established through the sacrificial system a means by which people could come in some way and worship him and have, we're going to see limited access, but have limited access to him. Why? Well, because Adam's sin had made it impossible for them to have complete access to God. So when we look here in chapter 9 and verse 1, for even the first covenant had regulations for worship, we understand that God's holiness and worship, His character, His holiness, and our worship of Him go hand in hand. Worship it and holiness go together. The same was true then, it's true today. The glory of God and His holiness, as we have already sung about this morning, in looking at His majesty and His grace and His wonder, are worthy of our worship because there is, listen, I know you hear this said, there is nothing greater, there is no one greater than God. There is no greater act that we can engage in than the worship of God. But there's something else to be considered when we give consideration to the worship that we're going to look at here. When we worship and declare the worthiness of God, we do so understanding that it has bearing on us. Being in the presence of holiness compels us to consider our condition. A condition which is always measured over and against Him and His purity. Just a few moments ago as we looked at our confession. A confession of sin is a recognition of disobedience to God and disobeying a holy and a righteous God. Even sin is caught in the very very throes of who God is and how we respond to this God. How we respond to this one who has created us. Whether we obey or disobey. Whether we honor or dishonor. Whether we love or hate. And they are just that broad. And there are no in-betweens. We either demonstrate our love of Him through obedience and honor or we demonstrate our hate of Him through our disobedience and dishonor. And as much as we want to try to find gray area between, we can't find that in the course of Scripture. It's an either or. It is zero sum game. Every act and every thought. And then God deals with that and looks at that in light of that. And he does not see the gray in there. So what does the author have to say here? Well, as it pertains to worship, he points us back to the earthly, holy place that God had established. For Just for a moment, let's go back in time. And let's think about a tabernacle that God had given explicit instructions of how to build that would be movable with the people. And it was a tent. Which tells us what? It was temporary. Pointed to the very fact that it was not permanent. But then neither was the temple that was modeled somewhat after the tabernacle. Why? Why? because we hear throughout scripture and they had witnessed and testimony uh, had witness and testimony the fact that God destroyed even in Noah's covenant what had happened every structure everything that had ever been built on this earth was what was ultimately destroyed and what had God promised in that other covenant it wasn't that he would never destroy again It was that he would not destroy with water. So even in that covenant, God was pointing to the fact that there would be nothing left here. That nothing is as good as him. Nothing is permanent. I want you to think about that for just a moment. You have nothing that is permanent. All the relics, all the things that we hold on to, all the things that have been passed down by our family members that we hold on to and cling to, as if they are permanent, they are not permanent, never was, was were intended to be. They are things. And the point is is that even in this earthly structure that God gives, He is pointing to the fact that it is earthly and it is not permanent. So what did he do? Well, let's look at what he said. For a tent was prepared. That which is not permanent. In the first section in which there were a lampstand and a table and a bread of presence, he begins to recall some of the articles that were there. Why? Because all of them were shadows pointing to him. Pointing to Christ. And also pointing to the work that Christ did. Would ultimately do when that which was permanent is established. I want you to note in the course of this that there is a tent that is not intended to be permanent. And notice that it says in the first section there were the lampstand, the table, the bread of presence. It is called the holy place and behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place and it tells about the articles there and what is there and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat and of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So in other words the author of Hebrews is not trying to break this down and parse it. He said, we're not talking about these in detail. We're just pointing to the fact that these are the things that are pointing to God. And then in verse 6, these preparations have been made. In other words, these arrangements, these articles, these things have been made. And the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. You know what we hear? The priests do this. Where are the people? They don't have access to God. The people do not have access to God. Even with all of this and how elaborate it is with all the details that are laid out, there was never the place where the individual, man or woman, boy or girl, who was not a priest, ever had access to God. They didn't have direct access to God. Why? Because there was a barrier between them and God. And there were two barriers between them and God. Their sin was a barrier between them and God. But notice that God established a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place as a barrier between Him and the people. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like God. It doesn't sound like the God that we know today. But it is the same God. This is why Christ is so significant. It's because there was the day when He had no access to God. And that access that was there at times was limited. Limited how? Well, let's look. Notice in verse 7. But into the second only the high priest goes. In other words, into the most holy place the high priest goes. And he went but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Remember last week, we came to understand, if we didn't know before, that the priests came from the tribe of Levi and from one particular family, the family of Aaron, Moses' brother. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Once the tabernacle was established, sacrifices were offered every day. But as time went on, and as that family grew and multiplied, that particular family represented the family from which all the priests would go those priests would come from that family. By the time of Christ and even before, that number of that family had grown to the point that they would train for a lifetime for one week of service in the temple. One week of service in the temple. So even being a priest, your access to God was going to be limited to one week in the course of your lifetime if you lived for your rotation to come around for your week's service there in the temple. And then the only priest that had, if you will, the direct or closest access to God, as close as you could have on earth, was only one priest, the high priest, only one priest. a year and for what look at what it says he would come into the holy of holies one time a year on the day of atonement to do what to offer a sacrifice for himself bring blood into that room for his sins and the unintentional sins of the people I want you to think about that for just a moment. The reason we started the service the message just a moment ago was to give consideration to the sin that we know about. Those sins that we know about were probably intentional sins. You possibly sinned and did it unintentionally and then looked back on it and recognize I didn't intend for that to be sinful, but it was. But the majority of our sin is what? At least in our minds, that that we know of, the majority of our sin are intentional sins. But even on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices that were brought into the Holy of Holies were not for the unintentional sins. In fact, let's go back and look at Numbers chapter 15. Look at verse 22. But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then if it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for burnt offering and a pleasing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel and they shall be forgiven. Because it was a mistake. And they had brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord and their sin offering for the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven and the stranger who sojourns among them because the whole population was involved in the mistake. What is being pointed to is that our sin, their sin, had bearing upon them as a community. Okay? And then in verse 27, If one person sins unintentionally, he shall make a female goat a year old for sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. So there's no distinction being given there between that one who is a... who is. Uh, a, a descendant of Abraham, Jewish of this Jew by descent, or whether that be a sojourner through the land. But the person in verse 30, who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or sojourner, reviles the Lord, And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. How limiting was the sacrificial system that God had put in place? Well, we see. Number one... It did not deal with deliberate sins. It dealt with unintentional sins. Which says what? It says exactly what Numbers said. That one who sins deliberately, that person's sin is upon them. They bear the guilt of that sin. And then two, notice what else it doesn't do. Look in verse 5. According to this arrangement... The gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So here's what we have. In the old covenant, there is limited access to God. That access being limited to priests only and even their access was limited. They did not have direct access to God. And in the Old Covenant, the sacrifices that were being made were for the unintentional sins. The person who sinned deliberately and willfully, that person's sin was still upon them. Which I believe, at least in part, Is why David has such a dilemma when we get to Psalm 51 and he's crying out for the mercy of God because of his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah because there he did that knowingly and he did it willingly and he did it deliberately and he's before God and he recognizes there is nothing in the law. There is no provision for me in regards to the sacrifices that have been made. God, I have to look to you and I cry out to mercy because my only hope is in you. There has not been a provision made for me that would allow this kind of behavior and for me to move on. That was the old covenant. But let's look at something else. Let's look at what our text has to say about the blood of Christ. Look in verse 11. Here's why there's such a difference. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not this creation, He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the limitation was that of the intentional sins and the cleansing and the purifying of the conscience of the worshiper. Which meant what? Which meant that under the old covenant, there never was an assurance that sins were forgiven. Those intentional sins were forgiven. There never was a cleansing of the conscience. Which is why when Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, Therefore now, those who are in Christ, there is now no more condemnation. That is that the soul now is not condemned. The conscience of the person does not live under the condemnation of the sin, but is now set free. Why? Because in Christ and in His sacrifice, the conscience is made perfect. In other words, the conscience is now made clear. Now I want you to understand, it's not talking about that somehow or another we don't care about sin anymore. No, when you look at what Christ has done to secure our salvation, our recognition of the holiness of God becomes even greater because now we are able to see the holiness of God and we're able to see our lack of purity and our own unholiness which is why when we come here each week and we confess our sins it is a serious matter and a serious thing. But in verses 11-14 through 14, we see the superiority of Christ's blood. Notice what His blood is compared to. It's compared to the old covenant means. That is look at what happens. There's the blood of goats and calves and the blood of bulls and notice also what else? There's the ashes of a heifer to sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Some of this I'm sure is lost on us because we've not grown up in a sacrificial culture. But remember that every Jew who frequented Jerusalem and who made his or her pilgrimage there? They understood the significance of the sacrificial system and just how bloody their religion really was. So much so that by the time of Christ, they had created a duck that would carry the blood out of the temple because it flowed so freely because of the thousands of sacrifices that were made. That blood went out a spillway to get out of the city because there was so much blood except for the blood that was gathered that would be sprinkled in the Holy of Holies that one time a year. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us the significance of the sacrificial system. The sacrifices were so many. And it was so bloody. But even in addition to all the sacrifices that were made. Notice what else was there. Provisions were made to take care of ceremonial cleansing along the way. If something along the way happened. Even as much as you coming in contact with a dead body. If you came in contact with a dead body. You were ceremonially unclean. You were defiled. How did they deal with that? Well, they went to the priest. And that priest would have on hand, wherever he was scattered throughout the various the various tribes where their cities were, that priest would have on hand a mixture of of the ashes of a red heifer mixed with other ingredients that had been prescribed by God that would then be placed in water and sprinkled upon the person so that that person would be cleansed and ceremonially purified, if you will, so that in due time, through the course, most of the time of seven days, that person would be able to go back and sit if you will, to even hear God's Word taught in the synagogues. Sounds kind of bizarre to us, but that's the provisions that have been made. That pointed to what? That pointed to man's sinfulness. But what about Christ and His sacrifice? Well, notice in verse 14, it's compared how much more In other words, if God had gone to all of these links because of the impurity of people to put all these sacrifices in place and none of them cleansed because they continued on and on, generation after generation after generation, day after day after day, the blood would flow, how much more then will the blood of Christ? In other words, how much better of a sacrifice is His who would, what? Be appointed by God as the means for eternal redemption. Which would be what? Would be a spiritual sacrifice. Notice, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God. In other words, he was appointed by God and received by God. Stop and think about that for just a moment. That Christ's sacrifice was so meaningful. So much better. The means and the only means for salvation Made a point there, and the author of Hebrews made a point to say that it was through the eternal Spirit, because it was in fact a spiritual sacrifice. You know, a lot of times we think about the crucifixion of Christ and we focus our attention on the physical suffering of Christ. That's the part that we can identify with. His physical suffering, though, severe, That's not what is significant about Christ's sacrifice. What's significant about it is that it was a spiritual sacrifice and offering. Where he bore the anguish that was brought on by the sin that was placed on him. And he bore the spiritual hardship and struggle of being rejected by God as he bore the wrath of God. Physical suffering, yes. Was His physical suffering more than the physical suffering of the one to His right and to His left? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what their tolerance of pain may have been. But that is not what is most significant. It's what we see. It was in that act that we see the spilling of blood. It was there where we see an innocent man Innocent of any charges on earth. And yet at that moment, innocent but not innocent because our sin had been placed upon Him. But His suffering was the suffering that came by the wrath of God upon His Spirit. And it's what? Notice what it says there in verse 14. It is powerful enough to purify the conscience of the worshiper. The old covenant had not been able to do that. Christ and his death. As Paul said. Therefore there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. But notice there is even more than that said here. There is the greater purpose What is the greater purpose? To purify the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therein is the purpose. We talked about gathering and worshiping today. It is about the condition of our hearts that enables us to come and to worship. Our conscience are purified and clean. We're able to come without condemnation before God if we have trusted in Him and worship Him. That word service there is the word that is directly tied to the service of a priest. Think about it for just a moment. What Christ's blood did was to enable us, those who trust in Him, for priestly service. Hear that again. It enabled those who believe for priestly service. It's why John was able to write, And from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priests to God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Why Peter wrote, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The purpose was to change Inwardly, In other words, not for outward conformity, but for inward change in the conscience that would enable us, those who believe, to be priests. To do what? Well, let's go back to the tabernacle. What did the menorah represent? represented the light of God and His glory, but it also represented that there was Christ who was coming who would be the light of the world. And yet Jesus, in His Sermon on the Mount, said what? You are the light of the world. In that, we take on that priestly service of pointing people to Christ. Christ. Our lives should not be lives of darkness, but our lives should be lives of light. To do what? To intercede as the priest did. What was the incense that was being burned? What did it go up for? It was an in intercession. What are we? We are the sweet aroma that goes up before God. We intercede. So each week as we gather here and Hopefully you will do this this week apart from it being written in our worship guide. But as we intercede on behalf of others, we are carrying out our priestly service. Spurgeon made this comment. He said to serve the living God is necessary to the happiness and the fulfillment of a living man. For this end we are made and we miss the design of our making if we do not honor our Maker. Look at verses 15. Not only is Christ's blood superior, notice that His mediatorial work is superior. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the mediator of a new covenant. I was thinking about this this week. When we think of mediators, what do we think of? We think of an individual, a neutral third party, who comes in between two opposing parties and does what? Help them come to an agreement on something that would bring about peace, if you will. That bring about some kind of a resolution to a problem. And if we begin to think about Christ in this way, we're going to get confused. Christ does not mediate in that way. He is not a neutral third party. Here's how Christ mediates. Christ comes in and He says, I agree, looking at me and looking at you, I agree that you are sinful and you deserve the judgment of God. There's only one resolution for that: is your death and your life for all eternity. But here's how I'm going to mediate for you. I'm going to mediate because I'm going to take your sin. And I'm going to die. And I'm going to bear the wrath of Holy God because I'm Him. And I'm going to mediate for you in that way. That's our understanding of Christ as mediator. And this is why we recognize that when we get to verse 15, He is a mediator of a new covenant. A new covenant that does what? Well, does three things. and I think they're bound together. One, that redeems. Notice in the latter part of verse 15. Since a death has occurred that redeems His death, That redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So here's what we need to understand. Is that Christ's death does what? Christ's death goes back and takes care of all of the sin of those under the first covenant. That's the point. And takes care of The present sin and takes care of the sin in the future. Looked ahead and took care of ours. So he redeems. Notice what else it does. It provides forgiveness. Look at verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So Christ mediates... And is the sacrifice and is the blood offering that seals and establishes this new covenant that provides redemption that the old covenant didn't and provides forgiveness and the assurance of that forgiveness because we've already talked about because of the purifying of the conscience provides the assurance of that forgiveness His blood seals that. How do we know that? Well, that's the inheritance. And all the things that flow through that, the inheritance that comes from His death. Look in verse 16. For where a will, and if you were translating, and the author of Hebrews does a good job of it here, if you were translating, that word could just as easily have been translated covenant because it's the same word. For where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a covenant takes effect only at death, since it's not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. The point is is that his last will and testament is that of redemption and forgiveness, that which could not be provided. In the Old Covenant. Notice in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, recipients of this last will and testament, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. In other words, provided that we persevere. Everything that we have been hearing here from the author of Hebrews, provided that we persevere. How many of you remember uh, Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar? Okay. Uh, How many of you are familiar with uh, Mark Anthony? Vaguely? How many of you remember the speech that in Shakespeare's play that Mark Anthony makes? It's actually the eulogy of Caesar. You remember that? Some of you do. Some of you maybe don't. Um, What's interesting is, is that Mark Anthony is given the opportunity to make the eulogy. And remember, now Caesar was assassinated by some of the Senate members that had gotten together. And this is a Reader's Digest version of what happens historically and what happens in the play. And he is assassinated because he has taken on more power than they think that he ought to. But... After his death, they have this funeral, and Mark Anthony is given the opportunity to give the eulogy at the funeral. Basically, he's instructed, you can do this, but don't incite the people, uh, and be real careful with what you say. So he begins his whole speech, the whole eulogy, by saying uh, that I'm not going to praise the man, I'm just going to simply talk about his death. But the fact is, is that most everything he says is in praise of Caesar. And then in the context of Shakespeare's play, he reads the last will and testament of Caesar. Anybody remember what he did for the people, what he left to the people? He left all, he left every Roman citizen two and a half months Wages, The value of two and a half months wages from his estate he gave to each one of the Roman citizens. That along with other things that Mark Anthony had to say caused the Roman citizens that were present at Caesar's funeral to say this. They cried out, most noble Caesar. Most noble Caesar. O royal Caesar. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Two and a half months wages over against a clean conscience, no condemnation for sin, redemption, and forgiveness. And you will know why the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 started out with the worship of God and what He has done in Christ Jesus. Then finally, look in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copy of the heavenly things to be purified. In the words, there was nothing pure. Everything had to be sprinkled with blood. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. We have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We are the heavenly things now that are being talked about. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God. hear that on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places year after year. And it didn't have anything to do with him shedding blood for his own sin. And he didn't come over and over again. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared hear this, please get this, once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice himself. Now here's where I want us to land. And it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment if you want to know what your end is you will die you will die and after that the judgment I mentioned my daddy last week and this is an ongoing thing for me and I don't want to bore you about it but I'm living through this but he and I had a conversation yesterday and he was telling me about some of his concerns and in the course of a conversation, I said, Daddy, are you concerned about living and how life is now? Or are you concerned about dying? He said, both. He said, but I'm not afraid of either. But I'm concerned. I know he's a believer and he trusts in Christ, but... The point is, is that he has recognized that it is appointed unto man once to die. And when you're almost 93, you know that that probably ain't too far off with failing health. But after that, the judgment. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will do what? Will come again. Take your worship guides just a moment if you will. Our catechism, who is the Redeemer? The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin himself. In our assurance of pardon today, and I close with this, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant that He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. 9 in verse 15. Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 9, and verse 26, But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And if that doesn't seal it for us, 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, For there is one God, And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time.